Christians have been reading and preaching, grappling with these stories, this text in particular, for 2,000 years. And in broad strokes, we can say that there have been two ways, one good, one bad, of reading this story that are often interwoven or overlapping right from the very beginning until now. The bad way has been to take Mary and Martha as types of the church in the synagogue or Christianity and Judaism or Christians and Jews. And then to characterize Martha, the Jew, as legalistic, busy with things of the body and having lost touch with the things of the spirit. And Mary, the Christian, as the person of prayer, the person who reads scripture not according to the letter, but according to the spirit, the one who worships in spirit and truth rather than legalistically and pharisaically. Of course, I don't need to tell you that that bad reading has often fostered and even energized not just ill feelings toward Jewish people, Jewish neighbors, but actual acts of violence and cruelty, inhospitality, misjudgment, abuse. And that reading continues to this day in various forms, of course, but still this assumption that Martha represents something gone wrong, something spoiled, something twisted, and Mary represents something right and holy and good. That's not, of course, what's in the text. That's not the right way to read it, but it is a way that it gets read. The other way, the good way that this text has been read is to see these two sisters, Mary and Martha, as signs of action and contemplation, ways of being in the world. One, action, Martha, which has to do with the doing of good works, caring for the sick, caring for the poor, fulfilling the commission to care for those who are in prison, those who are dying, for those who are being born, those who are in need, opening our homes in hospitality, caring for strangers. This active life is the life of ministry, where, as we would say in English, where the rubber meets the road, right? This, this is a way of life that makes a difference for our neighbors, makes a difference that they can measure, that they can feel. That's the active life. And Mary, then, represents or signifies the contemplative life, the life of prayer and meditation, the life of turning our attention to God, hearing him, seeing him, being present to the one who's present to us in ways that transform our hearts. And this good reading, one of the ways in which we know it's good, is that from the very beginning, Christians have insisted that action and contemplation are not in rivalry, or should not be. That we are called to be reconciled in action and in prayer. That we are called to be people who contemplate God and care for our neighbor. To love God by loving our neighbor and to love our neighbor by attending to the presence of God. Well, these, these two ways of reading, as I've said, continue right to the very, very present. And under the pressures of American evangelicalism, that gets simplified into trite, cliched sermons about learning how to be a Mary in a Martha world. I don't need you to raise your hand to tell me that you've heard some version of this sermon. We don't want to set the sisters in rivalry with each other any more than we want to set Jews and Christians in rivalry with each other. The fact of the matter is they 
do represent ways of life that need to be integrated, not disintegrated. We are called to be Martha-like. We are called to be Mary-like at the same time. And in fact, in Christian tradition, that has been a point of emphasis. We see it, for example, in Origen. Perhaps my favorite sermon on this passage comes from a medieval theologian and mystic named Meister Eckhart, in which he argues that Martha is actually the mature one. And this is not original to him. This shows up right right from the earliest days of the church. That Martha is not the immature one concerned about the things of the world. She's She's actually the mature older sister who's already learned to work and pray at the same time. And she's impatient that Mary has not learned to work and pray at the same time. Martha is saying, listen, I know how to run the house, cook the meals, clean the dishes, order everyone into the rightful place, set the table, unset the table, get people home at the right time. I know how to order all of this while I'm praying. Why can't Mary learn that? And Eckhart says that the heart of maturity is learning to live with other people's immaturity patiently. The heart of maturity is learning to live with other people's immaturity patiently recognizing that they're coming along at their own pace and I don't have to pull them up to speed with me. They're walking in step with Jesus, not walking in step with me. They're yoked to him, not yoked to me. So I want us to think about this story and I want us to think about it not in simplistic ways and not in disintegrating ways, but in integrating ways. And I want you to think about what it means for you, but I also want to think about what this means for us. And here I'm going to break one of my own rules, which is always a bad thing to do, and I'm sure I'll live to regret it. I hope I live to regret it. I hope I don't regret it, but if I'm going to regret it, I hope I live to regret it. (laughs) I don't want to die and regret it. That'd be something else altogether. When I teach preaching, I teach a course on preaching to doctoral students, and when when I teach them, I tell them, never tell people what you're wanting to accomplish with a sermon, because you're not going to get that done. For lots of reasons. One is, there are as many sermons being spoken as there are people in the room to hear it. At least that many. And more divided those people are, the more they're here. So most of you are hearing multiple sermons. Each of you hearing two or three or four or five or six. Some of you are legion, so you're hearing (laughs) endless varieties of sermons. And you also have not only the complexity of human being, but you also have the mystery of God, who knows what God is doing with your many hearings of what I'm trying to say. That said, I do want to, especially at the end of of the sermon this morning, to talk about what this story means for sanctuary as a community, as a congregation. Not just for me personally and you personally, but for us as a people. So, the lectionary this week, the Old Testament reading, is the story of Abraham, Genesis 18. And it's... As all stories in Scripture, it's so expertly told. It's told with a kind of simplicity that makes it easy to misread, to overlook what's happening. Here's the way that story opens. The Lord appeared to Abraham while he was settled or camping by the oaks of Mamre. The Lord appeared to Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Then the very next sentence is this. And Abraham looked up and saw three men while he sat in the heat of the day in his tent. So the Lord appears to Abraham. What does Abraham look up and see? Three men. The Lord appears. What does he see? 
three men who turn out to be angels. And all the way through this text, there is this alteration of who Abraham is speaking with and to and who is speaking to him. Is it the Lord? Is it three men? Is it three angels? Is it the Lord with two angels? Is the Lord a man? And the text won't let you quite catch up to who's doing what with whom here. What's key, though, is that Abraham is in the tent. It's the heat of the day. He looks up and he sees and he runs to them, throws himself down at their feet and says, if you will have mercy on me, stay and let me care for you. This is how the Lord appears to Abraham. And this, this, I think, is really important, that the Lord's appearance in our lives is the kind of appearance, most of the time, that we miss if we're not hospitable to strangers. Now, sometimes the Lord shows up in our lives in unmissable ways. Ask Paul about his experience with Jesus outside Damascus, or ask Moses about his experience on the tip of Sinai. There are times in which God shows up and you can't miss him. But most of the time when God shows up, we do miss him. Matthew 25, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was in prison and you visited me. One of the things that's striking about that passage, Matthew 25, is that both those who do care for the stranger and those who do not say at the end, we didn't know it was you. Because most of the time, overwhelmingly most of the time, when Jesus is present to us, we miss it. And we miss it because we don't look up and see the people who are in need around us. We simply overlook the Lord because we look past the people who are in need. Abraham is in his tent. It's the heat of the day. That's where you want to be. We're all about to live this this afternoon. You're in the heat of the day. You're in your tent. You're about to eat. And you look up and see three men passing by. And Abraham has been a stranger. He's been a sojourner for a long time now. He knows what it's like. But instead of being afraid of these strangers, he's afraid that he will miss his chance to care for them. And he rushes to them and lavishes them with hospitality. And out of that comes the promise to him and and Sarah, you will have a son. Now that story is the story that's in Martha's heart when Jesus shows up at her house. One of the things that's striking about Jesus is the kinds of friends he's attracted to. I mean, you're here. I'm here. That should tell you something about the kinds of people Jesus likes. Jesus is drawn to this family in particular, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. One of the ways in which that's strange is that the man of the house, Lazarus, never speaks, and is almost always listed last. It's Martha's house. It's Martha's house. So Jesus is drawn to this strange family, this family of two sisters, apparently unmarried, and a brother who doesn't speak. Jesus wants to be there. Jesus wants to be there. So he's passing through Bethany, Martha brings him into her house, and she's thinking and feeling what Abraham thought and felt. When, she, when he looked up and saw strangers and rushed to them, electric to care for them, she sees Jesus, and she's rushing to care for him. And while she's bustling about the house, not just in the kitchen, but ordering everything that happens for Jesus and his disciples, she notices that her sister isn't moving. She's just right there at Jesus' feet listening. 
And it's easy right at this point to think that Martha is shallow, that Martha is, as I've said, characterized as legalistic or pharisaical, concerned about the wrong things. A person who is busy with the things of God but does not know God. But I, th- I think that's a, a drastic misunderstanding of who she is. One, one caution. You should never read a biblical story and be critical of anyone until you feel defensive for them. Like when you read this story of Mary and Martha, if what comes up out of you is kind of disgust or impatience with Martha, that's a part of yourself you don't want to face. You're, you're projecting onto her what you don't want to be true of you, or vice versa. If, if Mary frustrates you and you project onto her that frustration, it's again, it's a way in which you're, t- you're telling on yourself. You're revealing something about who you are. This is why Scripture's stories work like they do. As inspired stories, what they do is surface what we think about ourselves and what we think about God. So, Martha, I think we have to be careful not to misjudge her. She's not simply a legalist. She's not simply busy or distracted. She's trying to be Abraham for Jesus. It's her care for him and her delight in him that has her electric, that has her dashing here and there to make sure everything is just so for him and his disciples and no doubt for the crowds of people from the city who are gathering around her house now to hear Jesus. And notice, she doesn't rebuke Mary. She doesn't simply scream at Mary, get your tail up and get in here and help me, or whatever the equivalent would be. I mean, part of the genius of this story, the way it's told, is that you can imagine it with all kinds of tones. I mean, I could see this as a scene out of Fiddler on the Roof, right? Where all the characters are larger than laugh, and it's larger than life. That was a Freudian slip. A fine one, I'm happy with it. Because there's something funny about it, right? And Martha could have made a scene here, but she doesn't make a scene. She goes to Jesus, and she asks him this question, do you not care? Do you not care about me? She's wounded because she's trying to lavish him with care, and she thinks he's indifferent to the love she's showing him. She thinks he simply just doesn't care that she's pouring out her life to make sure he's at home. And so she says, have you not noticed? Like, Mary isn't, I'm trying to take care of you and Mary won't help me and I can't do all of this. And again, we have to hear that, not as the word of someone shallow and legalistic, but of someone whose heart is broken open because she recognizes that this is the end for Jesus. This is the beginning of the end of his life. This may be the last chance she has to have him in her home, and she wants him to know he's loved and safe and welcome here. And Mary is just googly-eyed with Jesus. And it's time to grow up, get into the kitchen, and do the work that needs to be done. And then Jesus' response is, Martha, Martha. And this is our clue that what's happening here is not about Martha and Jesus or about Martha and Mary, but about Martha and Martha. Because whenever in Scripture God calls a name twice, Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Simon, Simon, 
Martha, Martha, and so on. Every time Jesus does it, it's because these men or women have been separated from themselves, and he's calling them back to themselves. We often talk loosely, carelessly, about sin separating us from God, but sin does not separate us from God. Sin separates us from ourselves. And when we lose touch with ourselves, then we are distorted. Our perception of God, our hearing of God is distorted. So what is meant as mercy is heard as judgment. What is meant as kindness is rejected as severity because we are estranged from ourselves. And we recoil away from the embrace of God, thinking he's meaning to strike us, not because sin has separated us from him, but because sin has distracted and broken us into pieces. So what's happening in this house, in this moment, is that Martha has been broken. And what she's seeing in Mary is, in fact, her own alienated self. She has lost the integration, the integrity that gives her life. She's outside of her own body. And because of that, Jesus begins by calling her back to herself. Martha, Martha, you're distracted. Not distracted from me. Jesus has no ego. We, we, we often mischaracterize Jesus as wanting to be the center of attention. The last thing Jesus needs is to be noticed. Jesus does not need to be famous. He doesn't need to be the center of attention. He doesn't have any ego, much less be, be acting, not, much less does he act like an egomaniac. I mean, Jesus is not Jesus only if you let him have every last word and dominate the room. That's not who he is. He doesn't rebuke Martha for not noticing him. He's not rebuking her at all. He's simply bringing her back to herself and saying, listen, you're scattered and I know you're scattered because you're misjudging Mary. I know you're scattered because what's coming up in you is your impatience with the people who are not making life what you want it to be. Don't you understand? You're distracted with many things, but she has chosen the good thing, the one necessary thing. She's decided for the better part. This this one necessary thing has all kinds of facets. And in this moment, she's doing what she needs to do. And you need to be able to see that for her. You need to be able to recognize that she is receiving what she needs and that that has nothing to do with you and what you need. Her receiving from me is not taking anything from you. The way in which I'm caring for her and she's caring for everyone else is not a loss for you. There's no rivalry here, Martha. There's a call for integration. And then, there's something missing in this Luke story that we don't even know is missing until we turn to the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, in the last week of his life, right before he makes the final turn to Jerusalem, Jesus comes back to this house to the village of Mary, the house of Martha. Because Lazarus has died. Jesus comes, you know the story, he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, and then in the tumult flees, hides for a while, and then one more time, one last time, comes back to their house. And when he comes back, guess what happens? They host him and they throw a feast. And John 12 opens this way. Listen to John 12. 
is how John 12 begins, right after Jesus raises Lazarus, flees and hides, and then returns. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled. Now notice what we have here in John is Lazarus is named. In Luke, he doesn't get named at all. It's just Martha and Mary. And Martha's house is a house in which there is this distractedness, this disjointedness between the sisters. But in John, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus' home is a home in which Martha is serving and Mary is anointing Jesus' feet. There's integration now in which all of this is at work at once. Martha is serving, Lazarus is reclining with Jesus, Mary is anointing Jesus for burial. This is the image of a person rightly integrated. This is the, ins this is the instance of a life that has been made whole, that is holy, because it has been held together in Jesus. Martha is action. She is Abrahamic hospitality. She is the one who sees and sees to the needs of others around her. But Martha isn't herself if she's not with Mary and Lazarus. And Mary is like Sarah in the Genesis 18 story. Abraham is running about feeding his guests. Sarah's in the tent, but Sarah's the one who hears the word of promise and conceives the word of promise. She's the contemplative one, the one who's in the tent, in the tabernacle, receiving the word. And Mary is at Jesus' feet, receiving the word. She's the one who sees before anyone else that Jesus is about to die. She's the first one to anoint him for his burial. And if we're going to be whole persons, holy persons, we have to be people who see and see to the needs of our neighbors, but also turn our attention to God and in contemplating him, contemplating him conceive his promise. But neither of those is possible if we don't know how to integrate Lazarus. Lazarus is the part of ourselves that does not speak, that is utterly needy, entirely dependent on the care of others. The reason Martha is at ill at ease, the reason when Jesus is there, she can't settle into the moment and care for him and allow Mary to be Mary, is that Martha is trying to control what can't be controlled. This is the sign. This is what distraction means. If your heart is noisy, it's because you're trying to control what can't be controlled. And the only way for Martha and Mary in you to get integrated is to accept that there is a part of you that will never speak, that is utterly needy, and yet it's you, and it's the you Jesus loves. You'll never fix it. You'll never make it work. You can't control all of this. You have to make peace 
with trusting God out of control of your own life. And this, as I start to wind down, brings me back to what I want to say about sanctuary as a community. Not just as a group of people who gather for worship, but as a congregation, as a people who've been gathered by the Spirit to worship together and to bear witness with the way that we live to the goodness, to the goodness of God. I think we need to ask ourselves, are we the kind of home where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are at peace? One of the things that happened to American evangelical churches is that we tried to specialize. And I, someday we'll, we'll talk about this at length, about how it happened. But we, we started to build churches that did one thing. So we had Martha churches and Mary churches and Lazarus parachurch ministries. And over time, that has fractured our witness and it's distorted our image of God. And so we end up seeing God not in the integration of action and contemplation and need, but in the disintegration of those things. And so, to put it bluntly, there are churches that pound the pulpit and say, preach the gospel, don't worry about social justice. And there are churches that insist that all that matters is that you care for the poor. What place does prayer have? And many people, many, many people, can't find a room in church at all because they're Lazarus. They don't have a voice. They can't speak. But if sanctuary is going to be a sanctuary, not for Marthas, but for integrated people, we're going to have to be a place that's not just safe, but is home for Marthas, Marys, and Lazaruses. And a place where those of us who are distracted, who are shattered, and we're more Martha than we are Mary, or more Lazarus than we are Mary, or more Mary than we are Martha, where we can begin to heal and become whole and reintegrate into the kinds of people who know how to live a life that is all at once active, contemplative, and needy. I'm trying to decide what to do next. Let me tell this story, and then I'll, I'll shut up and get out of the way. A few years ago, I was in a service, and the speaker shared a story about his time as a Christian student in a Muslim seminary in Cairo. And he went on and on about the hospitality these Muslims showed him as a Christian. And the ways in which in classes they would defer to him and ask questions, the ways in which in their times of prayer, they would make sure that he knew that he was welcome. And when he graduated, they gave him a gift. They gave him a Quran, and he gave a Bible to them. So he's sharing this story in his talk, and I'm wondering where it's going. I, I like what I'm hearing, but I just, you can tell by the way that he's telling it that it's headed somewhere, but I don't quite know where it's headed, just like you don't quite know where I'm headed. And he suddenly said, and the day that I graduated, when I stepped out of the door for the last time, I prayed 
that God would shut this seminary down so that no one would be misled by their false teaching. And then he said, and one year later, I received news that it had been closed and the place where we were broke into applause. Something grieved me about that, but I wasn't sure what was grieving me. It seemed especially unjesusy, but I didn't quite know why it seemed so unjesusy. But eventually it hit me. This is a story about a man who knew how to trust God to receive the gift of God, but he didn't know how to trust God in the giving of mercy to those who were unlike him. This, by the way, is what dominates the culture wars in our country. We all believe God can do good to us from people who are unlike us, but we're not sure we should be doing good to people who are unlike us. We trust God to receive good from people who are unchristian, but we're not sure we can trust God with giving to people who are unchristian. That's really unjesusy. It is the disintegration of Martha and Mary. It's incredibly selfish and frightened. It's small in all the wrong ways. But it's not just that he didn't trust God with the giving as well as the receiving. It's that he couldn't imagine God's work in anybody's life that wasn't directly tied to him. This, this is what's happening with Martha. Martha's in this moment, she's trying to care for Jesus, and she's frustrated with Mary because Mary won't do what Martha thinks she needs Mary to do. And please hear me. I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet nor the cousin of a prophet nor the neighbor of the cousin of a prophet, but hear me. Most of the noise in our souls comes from not being able to trust that God can work in other people's life without my opinion being shared. What God is doing in your neighbor is just none of your business. If you're not being called to serve them, leave them alone. Who knows what God is doing? So one of the ironies is if sanctuary is going to be that kind of place, we have to keep our eyes on what is ours to do. There are all kinds of churches in this city and mosques and synagogues. There are all kinds of people in this city who never have been here and who never will be here. We don't have to worry about all of that. That's not ours to fix. We don't have to control all of that. We don't have to make Tulsa Christian again. All we have to do is attend to the people that show up in this space, in our lives, and to be present to them in ways that are integrated, in ways that hold together Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, that are present to Jesus as he needs us to be present to him, not the way that we imagine we want to be present to him. And if we do that, we will be one small house in a big city. We will be one small family, strange family, really strange family, in a massive world. We're not going to win Tulsa for God. We're not going to turn America back to God. We're not going to turn the world upside down. We might positively care for dozens of people. And that's enough.
Because when we settle into that, stop with grandiose ideas about changing the world for God and see the face of that person who walks in that we don't know their name yet, and we are present to them, not in a cheesy, churchy way, but humanly, we have begun to become the kind of place where Jesus is safe enough to let his hair down. And that's what I want for myself, for my family, for this community. I'm not interested in Sanctuary becoming the fastest growing church in America. I'm interested in Sanctuary being a sanctuary, a home, where when Jesus is traveling, he can show up here. And Lazarus is safe here, and Mary is safe here, and Martha is safe here. Amen.